I'd like to bring in Lois, if I may. Lois Keith. I know you actively dislike recycling the story of the accident that caused your disability, so I won't necessarily ask you to do that except in the terms that you want to, but uh, why do you dislike that form of identification so much? I often think about it like a hinge in your life. You know, there's before and then there's afterwards. And, you know, my story, like many people's stories, is a kind of quite dramatic story. So, you know, you could use it as a as a complete showstopper and the world would love to listen. They might be bored by anything else important you have to say, but this would be one story they'd like to listen to. And actually, I don't think it's relevant. A, it's very personal. And B, I don't, I don't think... I, maybe I don't have a kind of such a cheerful and positive constitution as Mike. There was a lot of pain involved in it. I had two very young children at the time. And um, when I first started to write and think, I like to think intellectually about the position of being a disabled person and questions of identity and all sorts of things. But what I'm prepared to say in a public sphere, and mostly in a, in a private sphere as well, I have to say, is that I was 35. I'd had all my education, had quite a sort of solid, conventional sort of life at the time. I was married and had two young children when this complete change happened in my life. And I had to quite significantly remake a life. So really, unlike Mike, who was at the beginning of, of adult life, you were in the middle of it. So how much did your sense of identity change? Well, I suppose the time I had my accident, the most important thing in my life, I had, you know, had a home and a husband and a part-time job, and I had these two very young daughters. And they, I think if I had identified any single factor that was most important in my life, it would have been being a mother. And uh, people don't see people in wheelchairs of what it would normally conventionally describe as a severe impairment as mothers. And I couldn't quite see how I would be a mother myself because my children were to quite a physically dependent stage. So that was really very tough. And actually, although I learned quite a lot about how to see myself as a disabled person in this world from writings like Mike's writing... I didn't see a lot about being a disabled woman and being a mother and being a female sexual person and all that sort of thing. So that was the beginning of my writing because I felt that there was a whole lot I had to do and, and, and like most people who write, you do it to discover yourself. Mm. And I sort of was lucky enough to have a lot of other disabled female friends in that process. But did you, before that kicked in, as it were, did mm. you feel essentially different to the person you've been before? Well, I had to hold on to it, and I think that I did, and I sometimes feel in the public arena I still do a lot of pretending. So that the essential person who is me is there and unchanged. And, you know, the physical sense you had of yourself, as a, you know, 35-year-old, you know, no great beauty, but not horribly awful either, you know, so... That sort of sense, you know, that, that remains unchanged. And the people who loved you before carry on loving you and the people who irritated you before carry on irritating you and so on. But the problem is that every time you went out into the world, even, you know, even your personal world, people look at you completely differently. And the wheelchair is, as we know, a kind of symbol. It's like a symbol of impairment dependency. It's the kind of logo which tells you, you know, where disabled people should go and so on, even though the vast majority of people who are disabled don't use wheelchairs. 
so in one sense, the children normalised me because I had these two, you know, adorable kind of three-year-old and a one-year-old, you know. Who were too young to care. Who would, couldn't give a bugger, really. And, <laughs> and that was very nice. But on the other hand, you go out in the world and nobody quite believed you were a mother or you could be a mother or you'd, you know, or you'd ever go back to work. So I think that there is a sense of your inner self which does remain surprisingly strong. And, you know, this going out into the world, and that took me quite a long time to deal with and still catches me unaware now sometimes. Of course, there was enormous practical changes because I happened to be living in one of those classic London Victorian terrace houses, which is on five different levels and three floors. So I was made completely dependent by the physical circumstances in which I lived. After about a year, we moved into a flat and then we subsequently moved into a house and that physical change made an enormous change to your independence. I think that in a discussion about the psychology, it can be forgotten how much the balance of independence and dependence and your sense of yourself is based entirely on your physical place where you live. So once I moved into an adapted house, I could actually physically look after the children and while I didn't, I was quite dependent. I had to do... A lot of thinking about dependence and independence. Mm. And I had to redefine independence for myself. And I had to accept, as is true of everybody, but you don't usually think about it in this way, that being independent and having any sense of myself as a sort of separate and adult person might have to rely a lot more on other people than it did you know, before. Mm-hmm. But that wouldn't so necessarily to... make you want to meet people, would it? You know, well, I, I just thought, no. <laughs> I, I, I just, it just seemed to me absolutely essential because in order to understand things, and I certainly need to do a whole lot of new understanding, in order to understand things, you have to be able to name them. You have to be able to have a vocabulary for them. And that, I realised quite early on, would, couldn't possibly come from my family and friends from before because even though... You know, friends together, particularly women friends, had done a certain amount of thinking and talking and so on, reading mm. about issues, feminist issues. I think it was just very, very difficult. And I just, I don't know why, I was just lucky enough to understand quite quickly that the support I needed and the framework for what clearly had to be a new world had to come from disabled people. And I, th- I feel mm. I was very lucky to make one or two very good, I hope, lifelong friends who are disabled quite early on. See, I find that quite interesting because having gone to a special school, I went to through a stage when I didn't ever want to see a blind person ever again. Mm. It's quite an odd thing to say for the person who presents a programme for blind people now, but it was true. And it still happens to me that sometimes you're in a pub and somebody will say, oh, there's somebody you must meet over there. And it turns out that I must meet him or her because they're blind. <laughs> we may not have anything whatever yeah. in common, but there's, there is that link. When I was discharged from Spinal Unit, I, mean, I know I went through a number of years when I didn't want anything to do with other disabled people. That would have somehow been seen as a kind of betrayal. But then when I got political, I went through a period where I only wanted to associate with disabled people. <laughs> and, and I hope that, that now I've come through... I used to have problems with what to do in Sainsbury's. You know, when you're out shopping in Sainsbury's and another wheelchair comes down the aisle towards mm. you... Do you speak to them automatically because there's a bond or do you ignore them? I now do what I do, you know, to, to other people. I don't speak to everyone else in Sainsbury's, so just because someone's in a wheelchair, I don't, mm. don't speak to someone in a wheelchair. So I have a much more kind of reflective kind of view on that now. 